climate change, it gives us a chance to reimagine the world in a way that every single human being can participate in. And so whether you're in a remote part of the United States or some other country, when you learn about climate change, it shouldn't just be the science, it should be the opportunity. And the second part of Earth Day's big campaign globally is that it's gotta be about jobs. So we have over 235 million union members signed on to our global petitions for climate education. We have 65 million teachers signed on. We have governments left and right now understanding the connection between their ability to participate in the green economy and educating their population now, not just because they want them to know the science of climate change. It's not that hard. You know, you basically built an incredible umbrella around the planet when you burn fossil fuels and it's making the place really hot. And so that's the science, but the opportunity is really important. So we believe that climate education should be in every class from art to gym class to whatever. And we're not alone. I would go right back to that very simple thing of treat animals the way that you would like to be treated. And I know that humane education is becoming a more welcome subject or way of teaching in schools. And I definitely think we need more of that where it's not you go to school and learn about maths and science and history and so on, but learn about those subjects within the realm of real life issues and real life problems such as animal welfare or climate catastrophe. So I think we need to equip young people with the challenges of the world that they're entering into and the way that the world is set to be. I had the privilege of working with the great climate scientist, Dr. James Hansen, and we were writing his TED Talk some years ago. And he said, I really want to put in this talk that the Earth is way out of the energy balance. There's so much more heat energy coming into the atmosphere than is now able to go back out to space because of these gases we put in the atmosphere. And I said, great, Jim, let's put that in the speech. You know, how bad is it? How much energy is it being trapped? And he said, it's really a lot of energy. David, it's a quarter watt per square meter. And I said, oh, wow, Jim, that doesn't sound like very much. He said, what do you mean? There's a lot of square meters in the earth. <laughs> like, okay, like maybe we could find another metaphor to you know, communicate this. And another scientist was in the room with us, took out his calculator and he said, oh yeah, it's like exploding 450,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs in the earth's atmosphere every day. And I said, yeah, I think people can understand that because this was 12 years ago or so, and of course we've polluted so much more, that now that's a million H-bombs a day. That's the energy equivalent being trapped on Earth, in case you wonder why we're having all of these spiking temperatures. It's key that we can help alleviate some of the psychological distress and things that can produce negative mental health outcomes through interventions that specifically address that. But crucially, in a crisis that is escalating, we need to be able to get at the root problem. We need to be able to foment our ability to take climate action, to mitigate more harms and adapt well to the harms that are baked in. So that means that action taking, agency, self-efficacy, these elements of who we are, which are not just in all of us, they need to be built and cultivated and supported is part of any mental health response package in the climate crisis that we can't just self-soothe as the planet burns, so to speak, that's not really gonna do anything to increase our ability to thrive and flourish in the long run. We need to pair the support and the emotional coping with 
the ability to help produce the change that we want to see in the world. What gives them satisfaction and what makes them feel really alive is an inquiry process that a person can go on and alongside what skills they may have to offer to find ways to connect rather than just assume this crisis is so big, we can't do anything, I don't know where to start. There's so many creative ways in which we can approach this. This issue around water is that water is simultaneously a scalar issue, right? It's, it's a local problem, it's a global problem, it's a place-based, but it's also beyond place, it connects places. But when you think about water, it is such a fundamental basic need for all life survival, which is why we look for signs of life in terms of signs of water on other planets. But at the same time, we recognize that it is the one resource that we as human species cannot live without, neither can other living beings, in terms of the fact that we need it for both biological reproduction, but then also day-to-day -day survival. So we cannot drink oil. We cannot find a substitutable resource. So if we recognize water is simultaneously economic, social, ecological, spiritual, cultural, you know, all of these issues, we need to recognize that it influences very different aspects of our lives, whether it's household domestic labor, food production, childcare and care work, but then also industrial production or geopolitics. There's something very basic and fundamental about water in how we structure our cities. So there are a lot of ways water comes to influence our lives Ice covers about 10% of Iceland, and then the glacial rivers are basically shaping the landscape and the waterfalls all around Iceland. It brings nutrients. So what is Iceland without this? Just land. And so we're losing more than just glaciers, we're losing some kind of identity or place. I think our utilitarian approach to nature has really been the source of the, the problem. We've depended on nature for everything that allows us to survive. But what we tend to do as humans is extract the parts that give us a function. So we extract the parts that are for food and then we propagate them. And we extract the parts for timber and we propagate them. And that leads to these monocultures that are not nature. They're extensive sort of reductions of biodiversity loss. And that is what has given rise to so many of our global threats and climate change and pandemics and food insecurity. That's all stemming from our utilitarian approach to find the functions of nature. Instead, what we need to be doing is promoting the holistic beauty of nature. And that is when it provides all of those functions that allows us to survive best. I hope that in my class and the current generation really needs to be far more reflective and not just because something doesn't gel with what they think is the right thing, is the just thing. They can't just dismiss it out of hand. And one way to really gain a better understanding is to read widely, not just read what you agree with. Don't just talk to people you agree with. Read and discuss widely, especially read those things that you disagree with. And then ask yourself, why? Why are you having this reaction? Why this negative emotion? Go to the heart of why you think you disagree with this. So it's a combination. It's not pure rationality. You need to have passion, but you need to, I think, guide the passion through this reflective, discursive exercise. And also it enables the young to become better communicators. You need to be open to being questioned. You don't outshout the questioner. You really need to be able to answer these uncomfortable questions. And that's the way for persuasion. 
cities are really the living lamps of everything that we're doing in terms of energy policy. It's extremely important that whatever we are putting forward in terms of policy, in terms of legislation, if it is not embraced by citizens in cities, in the local level, the best policies will not serve any purpose if they're not really taken up by the citizens. I think there's no such thing as completely clean energy. We use that term a lot, but it's not really true. We have low carbon energy, lower carbon energy, but any kind of industrial system has requirements for materials and processing, and nothing's completely natural in the industrial world. If we can electrify transportation, I think we can clean up the grid, and then I think we can deal with these life cycle issues in a way that's responsible, but it'll never be zero. That's impossible. They need to protect the forests and the sturgeon and the rivers and the critters who do ultimately, whatever we think about rights of nature, do ultimately need a person to walk into that courtroom or that legislative hall and give them a voice in our human world and be their most powerful voice and advocate. Nature needs people to defend it in our human world. And so we just have to give the people the most powerful tools. The Creative Process and One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This podcast is produced by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Max Richter's music featured in this episode was Spring One from the New Four Seasons, Vivaldi Recomposed, and Vladimir's Blues from the Blue Notebooks. Music is courtesy of Max Richter, Universal Music Enterprises, and Mute Song. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.